Hello everyone and welcome to Kids Under Construction. I'm Donna Tatro. Today we are talking COVID-19 and youth sports, getting our kids back onto the fields when it's safe and possible. What might our new normal look like? When can our kids play again? Millions and millions of kids and parents are chomping at the bit from baseball and softball to soccer. You name it, kids want to play again. We're going to start off with Little League Baseball and Softball. I have three very special guests today. First, Stephen Keener. He is president and CEO of Little League International. Dave Hilton is president of Encino Little League, one of the largest leagues in Los Angeles with over 700 participants. And Andrew Bunnan, a Little League coach for 10 years. He's also my husband. Welcome to you all. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Stephen, I want to start with you. You've been at this for four decades and have never seen anything like this. I mean, none of us have. You have advised all of your programs to suspend all activities through May 11th at this point per CDC recommendations. So talk about how you are managing this crisis day to day. You're right. I, I've never seen anything like this. I, I, I think I speak for a lot of people when I say that. What we attempted to do is, and, and, and we're really a service organization, so we provide a myriad of services to, to people like Dave and, and your husband to help them facilitate the management of a, of a local Little League program. We have 6,500 programs in 84 countries, so it's a, it's a pretty significant reach of, of our program. So what, what we can do is be the conduit to provide information, services, um, and, and communication. So communication has been probably the most critical component of what we've been doing since mid-March when we had to basically tell leagues you've got to either shut things down or not start at all. And uh, so we've, we've developed a, a separate sort of coronavirus Little League website where we post timely information on a, almost a daily basis with updates on the frequently asked questions that we get from league presidents and other parents and, and, and other people in local leagues. And then, you know, I, I've said this all along, our, our highest priority when we come out of this pandemic is there's millions of kids who are sitting at home, you know, been home from school and, and isolated and, and not doing the fun things that they've been able to do, whether it's Little League Baseball or soccer, whatever it might be. And so our highest priority is getting those millions of kids back on a playing field as soon as it's safe to do so. So we've been trying to give some guidance to our leagues and direction to them about when that time comes, here are some things you need to be mindful of when you restart or, or start from the, you know, a lot of leagues in the Northeast and the cold weather areas haven't even, didn't even start. But like in Dave's case, they probably had a few games in already before we, before we had to issue the recommendations to, to uh, suspend everything. So communication's really been the key we, and we've tried to do that in an even more effective manner than we normally do. Uh, through the use of, uh, of video communications and, and emails and newsletters, and then and then posting information where it's easy and accessible for people to find it regularly. That's been largely it. And we we've had to consult with you know federal officials. Uh, we've reached out to uh, various health department officials in all of the states where we host our higher level regional and World Series tournaments uh, for guidance from them. On, on what we may or may not be able to do uh, later this summer. And it's been, as you can perhaps appreciate, it, it's been a bit cumbersome and, and awkward to try to do all this 
without having the benefit of being able to be in our offices because we our governors basically closed our types of any non-life essential businesses that had to close. And so we're doing all of this remotely. And, and that's a that's a that's a new learning for us. I told you before we got started, I'm you know, I'm 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 just happy that I was able to make the connection. So so when you add all those things together, we're we're probably we're probably busier now than uh, than we would be if we were in our offices. So when we talk about what baseball might look like, I mean, we've been social distancing. That would be completely different on a baseball field than it would be from soccer on the soccer field. Sure. How are you thinking about potentially playing this game moving forward if it's possible this summer? Well, we've given a lot of thought about that, a lot of thought to it. I was in a meeting a couple of weeks ago and one of my colleagues who is the sort of our director of operations and handles all of our tournament play and World Series play. He said to me, he said, you know, this is really like an extended rain delay. And he said, if you can tell me when it's going to stop raining, I can tell you the plan. So right now, everything is really just an idea because we don't know when we're going to be able to get kids back on the on the fields. In some states, that may be sooner than others. Generally, the direction that we're trying to give everybody is consult with your local and state health officials. What really, I mean, I think it would be very difficult to try to start to play or to resume a season uh, under any conditions other than somewhat normal ways of playing the game. I suppose we could we could do some things in a maybe almost like a sandlot format with where maybe you don't have umpires. Maybe you just, just to get the kids playing. I mean, so those are some of the ideas that we're, that we're, we're thinking of. But I think if social distancing is going to be required, then I think that, that the local officials, people like Dave and your husband and others are going to have to get very creative if they want to try to play under those conditions. And we'll give some guidance and some direction on, and we've done some of this already on everything about sanitizing equipment and, and, and having, having hand sanitizer available. And don't, you know, you can't have the, you shouldn't have the post-game handshakes like, uh, you know, are so typical after a, a little league. And there, that's an important part of a little league game is the sportsmanship aspect of it. So, you know, we're thinking maybe, you know, maybe you tell the teams that when the game's over, you, you, you stand six feet apart, you line up on the foul lines, and you all wave your hats at each other. I mean, that's a way to say, nice game, you know, demonstrating the sportsmanship that's an important part of a little league, a little league program. I think it will be a very difficult challenge, though, to, to do all of that. Yes, Dave. So tell us what you're thinking on your end. We did start our little league season and then you had to pull the plug. What are you thinking it will look like at Encino Little League based on what Stephen is advising? So really, you know, what we're looking at is uh, state health officials as well as local city officials and getting their guidance. Uh, We play on L.A. County, L.A. City uh, Recreation and Park Land. And at this point, they have suspended all play at all facilities and any activity other than feeding meals to kids who are out of school. You know, from the people that I've been talking with, uh, social distancing will be continuing for the summertime. Um, I know, or from what I've been told, LA Rec and Parks is not going to be having any of their own programming through September of this year, uh, you know, not doing a summer program like they normally do. So it really is going to depend on the guidance uh, that we receive from, you know, all the way from the top, all the way down to our public officials of, uh, of what they suggest us to do and what they recommend. Because, you know, with, with 700 kids in our league, if they say that we can't have more than 10 people together, 
You know, we're not going to play a five on five baseball game. Uh, our goal is to create, you know, to have the fields available and ready for the kids when the time is to come. Uh, you know, our workers have been still at the fields mowing them, keeping them looking nice and getting them ready for the kids to play. Uh, you know, we, we switch our workers off, uh, you know, only so only one is there per day mowing the lawns. We have two full time workers at our field. And uh, because of the social distancing rules, uh, we can only have one there at a time. So, you know, we're, we're there, we're ready and we're waiting. Dave hit the nail on the head. It, so much of this will be determined by what state and local officials, health officials and public officials tell them that they will be permitted to do. And that will be different from state to state, I'm, I'm sure. So based on what you're both saying, Dave, since we're in California and we have been a bit ahead in some ways of this pandemic compared to like New York and New Jersey, uh, say we get the okay to stop social distancing August 1st. Would you put a season together? Could you put a season together? So that's actually a question that I'm going to pass back to Stephen because, you know, with little league age requirements, you know, I have some 12 year olds, about 85 of them age out of majors division, literally this year, move into the intermediate or juniors division. So I think the question, um, and this, this would come top down from little league is what are the, how can we restructure the age divisions to play our normal spring season in the summer playing into the next fiscal year of our own little league? Yeah, it's a great question, Dave, and we've been uh, contemplating all of those uh, scenarios. And uh, while I'm, I can't uh, give you a definitive answer here this afternoon, what I can tell you is that we are going to be very accommodating of eligibility requirements throughout the remainder of the calendar year. Because we understand that in, in places like California, maybe some others where the season, you, you may not be able to start until August. We want you to have a season. We want those, particularly those 12-year-olds, to have a, a, a last major division season. We're going to work to find ways to try to accommodate that before the, before the calendar year ends. I know Andrew has a question about extending the season for 12-year-olds who are missing their last Little League season. Andrew? Yeah. Is there any thought if, if this season ends up getting completely washed out because of the social distancing possibly getting in some kind of season for the 12 year olds in the fall, spring, or, or even next summer? Yeah, no, Andrew, it's a question we're getting asked a lot. And, and uh, it, it is a very difficult, uh, a very difficult circumstance to try to navigate. Um, for example, there are a lot of people who feel they, they only look at this from a sort of a macro level and they see that the NCAA uh, granted an extra year of eligibility for players who lost their spring seasons, wh whatever the sport may be at the, at the collegiate level. And there are people who think, well, then you ought to just do the same thing in high school or in, in, in youth sports. Here, here's, here's the challenge for us is that, that our program is designed for the age group as it is today. And we play on a small field. Uh, a number of years ago, we made a change to the age determination date in our program based on a, uh, uh, a lot of data and input from parents like you uh, who have told us that they really prefer their kids to play with kids they are in school with and that are you know, not 13 years of age. So I think it would be very difficult for us to reverse that, even, even under these circumstances. As hard and heartbreaking as it is for me, too, to say this, I, I, just, I just don't know that there's any way possible 
to extend another year to, to that to those kids. We do have the you know, and it, it's certainly not perhaps the perfect answer, but we do have the intermediate division, which is the for 13 year olds, which is the next step up with the 50 foot pitching distance and 70 foot baselines, uh, which they most of them are going to be playing if they're in a middle school program or a, a junior high school program or any other teenage uh, uh, program. So, look, I, I've learned never say never. So I'm not going to I'm not going to give you a definitive answer to that today. But I, I, I would just tell you that it's a it's a huge challenge. We're actually consulting with some medical professionals along with uh, we uh, have a, a gentleman who's offered us some terrific advice. He's a clinical child psychologist. Uh, so we're, we're consulting with people in a professional capacity that can give us some guidance on all of this. And uh, and then we'll come to a decision on that. But I. You know, today I would tell you it's certainly leaning heavily to to not doing that, but we haven't made a definitive answer yet. Even to add to that, you know, I think, you know, talking with the health professionals, it's, you know, there's a big difference between a 12 and a 13 year old arm, you know, that that puberty hits around that age. And once they get to there, the strength and condition of a 13 year old pitching against a 12 year old is a lot different. And I think that's why we've been promoting the intermediate and juniors program at our league to get those older kids to stay in Little League longer and uh, could be something that Little League looks at and giving it more publication because, you know, with the Little League World Series at the age 12, you know, people think that's where it ends, but it really goes on until, honestly, you can do a waiver up to your age 15 uh, and play Little League. Yeah, in fact, uh, David, you probably know this. I I don't know about Don and Andrew, but uh, we do have our 13-year-old Intermediate World Series in California. It's up in uh, Livermore, up near, uh, up in the, the northern part of the state. What's interesting for me is that we know the statistics. I mean, the average child today spends less than three years playing a sport, quitting by age 11, most often because the sport just isn't fun anymore, they say. Maybe this is a reset to keep kids in the game longer by extending Little League junior play? Certainly hope so, yeah. We have about uh, 80 people in our each of our age groups, 12 and below. It ranges between 80 and 120. And in our juniors program this year, between 13 and 14 year olds, we had a total of 25. So I think it says a lot of, you know, continuing that on and keeping kids in sports. Yeah, And I, you know, I, I, I would just be remiss if I didn't also underscore that while, you know, I'm sure your son feels the same way and there's millions of kids like him, you know, little league is important to them and it's, it's important to all of us. But I think we also have to have them understand that what's going on right now in our world is far bigger than sports and, and far more important than sports. And, and sometimes life lessons are hard. And, and that's part of the Little League experience, too, because David may chuckle at this, but you know, every year I seem to get a call or two from a Little League coach who wants me to write a letter or send a certificate to them because their team went undefeated. <laughs> and I always tell them, you know, I, I, I'll be happy to do that if that's really important to you, but I'm, I'm actually kind of disappointed for you. And they'll say to me, well, why is that? We were undefeated. We won the league championship. I said, well, yeah, you did. And that's fine. But I said, your kids were really robbed of the full Little League experience. I said, because part of Little League is learning how to lose, too. And, and I, I don't say that because I like to see kids lose. What I want to underscore to parents and anyone who's, who would listen is that if you can learn how to handle some adversity and a loss in something as unimportant as a Little League game, you're going to be far better prepared somewhere down the road in your life when you lose something far more important 
to handle that. And so I think, you know, losing, well, it's no fun and, and nobody wants to lose. You shouldn't try to lose. Just try to play hard and try to win. But when you do lose, there's there's lessons to be learned there, too. And and they're important and they're valuable. And and we get caught up in people thinking that winning is so important. And it, it really isn't. It, not at the Little League level. And, and that's what I would I would tell parents that there, there's a lot of people losing things far more important than a season of Little League right now. And, and that's that's a tough lesson to learn. But it, it might be one that a lot of people will benefit from later. And I think that's really important. There are lots of lessons to be learned here. I think it's important to talk about what we can do now as opposed to what we can't do at this moment. Kids can keep playing at home just in a different way. Andrew, why don't you start? So there are a lot of things you can do, um, even if you don't have a lot of space or the weather's bad doing stuff indoors. One thing is you can buy a, a weighted donut that you can put on a bat and you can have your kid swing inside. Just make sure there's enough room where he or she doesn't hit anything. If you've got even a sidewalk, if you don't have a backyard, but better if you have a backyard, just take a ball out and play catch because uh, catch is, is a big part of baseball so and softball. So I think both of those are, are great. Kids watch a lot of YouTube these days, and uh, they're probably doing it more so now when they're isolated inside their house. So I've tried to get my kids to watch some instructional videos, and, and I'll actually watch them along with them so that I can reinforce what they're being taught. But just trying to ask them to put in maybe you know 5% of their time to doing something productive like watching a, an instructional YouTube video can be really helpful for their uh, baseball skills. All great, great advice, Andrew, uh, and, lo- and lots of good stuff. When my kids were in Little League, our, their coach, their manager, used to play a game at the end of practice called Hit the Helmet. And what, what he would do, and, and you don't have to do this for money, but he would roll a dollar bill up and put it in the hole on the top of a helmet and put it on home plate and then give all the kids one throw from second base. And if they hit the helmet, they got to keep the dollar. So he would always he would always come over and ask the parents, hey, I need some ones so I can we can play hit the helmet. <laughs> so my point is, you know, you can make some fun things to do, too, that, that help with like accuracy and throwing and, and, and those kind of things. And let me let me get one little plug in for a promotion that we did, because Andrew it kind of goes to the things you were you were recommending. We have started a social media campaign called a Little League Pep Talk. And you can find it on our Twitter page, uh, Facebook, Instagram, all those places. And we have asked notable baseball players, softball players, some people in the media to offer little leaguers a pep talk about some things they could do while they're stuck at home. And everybody from Oral Hershiser with your Dodgers to Harold Reynolds from the MLB Network to Todd Frazier, Little League World Series alum and many other players and they're all offering those types of things for kids to do when they're isolated. So it's called the Little League Pep Talk. Okay, what about you Dave? You know, my my whole goal in uh in Little League is, you know, building community and making sure kids have fun. So whatever I do, I have three kids at home. I have a 12, a 10, and a uh, 7-year-old and you know whatever they want to do to have fun with baseball is is what we try to do. The other day we were playing uh, monkey in the middle in the pool with a baseball, you know, or, you know, anything just to get their arms throwing. Um, you know, I think the hardest thing that 
you know, they have and is that kids aren't warming up. So, you know, we made sure that every day that their arm gets warmed up before we throw hard. And, uh, you know, we're in the street throwing the ball down the street. Uh, we take the dog out and let him chase the baseball. But really, everything has come down to uh, throwing the baseball at home and trying to uh, make sure that they have fun and enjoy the game. Because uh, at the end of the day, we want kids who like baseball and want to come back to baseball and watch baseball. Steve, you advised all programs to stay off the fields through May 11th. When do you think you'll have an update for the leagues? And what about the date? Might that be extended? What are the next steps? It's a, it's a great question. I would estimate that will be within the next week uh, where we're going to have some updates. We just, uh, we just had a meeting on Friday with the uh, CDC. Um, got some more guidance from them. We, as I said earlier, we've reached out to a number of states where we host regional and World Series tournaments uh, to their health officials for some guidance. Uh, so we we're compiling all of the information that we have. We'll be able to provide more information probably, hopefully, maybe later the end of this week, but early next week at the latest. What I will reiterate though is that it, the, the most important thing will be to communicate to leagues and people like Dave that you're really subjected to the restrictions and direction that you get from your local people. Because, you know, if, if California says there's no gatherings of folks of 10 or more or 25 or more or whatever it might be until August 1st, that may be different than what's done in Texas or Oklahoma or Ohio. So you were going to put a lot of emphasis on, on how to contact your health officials, how to get that information for your community, your state, and then, and then act accordingly. Dave, is there anything you want to leave on your level at Encino Little League? Anything that you would want to say to parents or what parents are thinking? What are they telling you? How are they feeling? I, th I think the, the number one question I get these days is, uh, what about refunds? You know, how do refunds work? How does the process yeah. work for that? Um, you know, I, I think what I'd love for parents to know is that with most youth organizations, uh, we are a nonprofit. We are a 501c3. Nobody at our league, uh, any of the parent volunteers are paid. And, you know, what we take in in registration fees is usually spent about 50 to 60 percent of it before the season even starts. Um, you know, between uniforms, uh, I had to buy 10,000 baseballs this year. You know, we go through a lot of equipment to get the season ready. And, you know, when, when parents ask us about refunds, we're hoping that we can play a season this year so we don't have to approach that conversation. But you know, at the end of the day, you know, as we're looking at it right now, about 50 to 60 percent of registration fees have already been spent. And we only played about six games. Uh, you know, we were open for a month. We have, you know, our annual insurance premiums due uh, between our snatch stand, our, uh, you know, we have two field workers that we have to pay. And so um, I, I just hope that parents will be appreciative of the hard work that's going on behind the scenes and trying to figure out the finances. Uh, we're not getting bailed out like other organizations are getting, you know, loans from the government. Um, so, you know, we're trying to work with the money that we have uh, and uh, we'll do our best to either give kids a season of baseball or uh, provide whatever portion of refund that we can provide. Well, that's really an important point. Thanks for letting us know about that, because I don't think parents are aware of all that goes into this. So thank you so much for that. Is there anything that the three of you would like to say or that you think is important to mention? You know, Donna, let, let me let me just kind of play off what, what Dave just said about the refunds. We, we talked earlier about the kind of services and communications that we provide to 
our affiliate programs. We actually have a page in our coronavirus Little League website about how to handle league finances. So we're giving leagues direction on, you know, because some leagues don't, are not in a position and, and certainly some families are, are hurting economically. And, you know, the refund from a lost Little League season may be important to them. So we're trying to give leagues guidance on how to handle all of those things. What I will tell you, and we're, we signed on to this, we're, we're part of an organization called the National Council of Youth Sports. And we are one of many organizations that signed on recently to an effort uh, to make an impression upon our federal legislators that if there's any money left over when you take care of the really important things, that we would certainly appreciate consideration of a youth sports relief fund. Because there's going to be a lot of leagues that are going to be struggling financially and going to need help getting back on their feet. So we're going to we're going to promote that. We're going to support it. We're going to certainly try to do our best to see if we can stimulate some assistance because community based volunteer run organized sports programs are so important and they're part of the quality of life of a community. And, and, and if that's lost, then, you know, a big piece of the community is lost. So we want to we want to try to help there. Secondly, we are also very mindful of the financial burdens that local programs are incurring. So we're going to do everything within our ability to try to be as flexible and as accommodating as possible for local Little League programs to operate in whatever relief we can try to provide or assistance we can try to provide. We're going to, we're going to do that. We have a program called Grow the Game Grants, which we'll probably look at suspending that because that's used more for facility improvements and those kind of things. And we'll probably take a look at how we can use those grant funds going into the next season to maybe try to help some leagues that are maybe a little more disadvantaged than, than others. Thank you for that. Andrew? Uh, I, I think throughout this whole thing, what I realized the most is that the thing I miss the most that we don't get to do right now is watch our kids play sports. And, and in particular for us, we're a big baseball family. So watching them go play Little League. And it's not just watching them play on the field. It's also just seeing all of our friends seeing all the other kids and competing and just all of the things that we talked about here about the, just the community spirit and everybody coming together. I, I, I miss it so much. So I would say that's the thing I've learned the most. Andrew, I would, I would tell you that that's the beauty of the little league program because it's so much more than just baseball and softball. It, it's really part of the fabric of a community and it's, it's just as important from a social standpoint with families and everyone else. So we, we certainly understand how you feel. Well, I want to thank all of you for being here today. And I think this is really important information for parents to give to their kids so that they can understand kind of what's going on, of course, in an age appropriate way. So thank you so much, all three of you for being here. Thanks for asking me. It's been a pleasure to meet all of you. Now we move from the baseball field to the soccer field. Millions of boys and girls play soccer in this country. Within the AYSO organization, there are 50,000 teams and 600,000 plus players. Soccer is a huge part of our kids' lives. And all those kids now have been benched from playing and parents sidelined due to COVID-19. We have two executives from AYSO here with us today. I am so excited to welcome them. I am happy to have Scott Snyder. He is the Director of Programs and Education. He also served as Technical Director. He has more than 20 years of professional soccer education experience and management and lots of experience as a coach and instructor. He is also a former professional soccer player in England and in the U.S. 
Yvonne Lara is the Director of Marketing and Communications. She has been working in the marketing and communications world for 20 years, starting her career at California State University Fullerton, which led to a nearly 12-year career at Fox Broadcasting Company. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you, Donna. It's great to be here. So I want to start with you, Yvonne. Tell me, what are you hearing from parents and kids? They must be so frustrated at this point. I think, you know, obviously the kids miss, um, ultimately what happened to them is so many different things at the same time. They stopped going to school. (laughs) They stopped being able to hang out with their friends. Um, They stopped being able to interact in the ways that they normally get that energy out. Um, You know, and the fact of the matter is that kids sometimes, I think they surprise us. They are amazingly resilient and finding creative ways to still engage. It's a good thing that they know how to navigate the uh, technology at their fingertips, um, more so than parents. Um, and so uh, what we have found is that the kids are finding really great ways to use the resources that we've provided or want to show off their skills. We've had a lot of uh, ways that we've asked them to engage with us. And so they get their parents to film them doing drills and coloring contests and you know sharing how they work out at home and, um, and tag that as you know, the parents, I think, come, obviously, they have a bigger picture at play here. So there's a lot of different things. Um, and we're seeing some, you know, obviously, parents, the trepidation of how can my kid return to the field? Can my kid return to the field? Some have, my kid has asthma. I don't think they can actually go back on the field. Also, though, they're, they're dealing with the, the fear of, um, of socioeconomic loss there, too. They have lost their jobs or... Um, they may be forced to move or, you know, stuff like that. So some of these questions are, um, it's funny in the beginning when this all happened, we were getting a lot of emails of, can I get my money? Can I get my money? Or, or when can we get back on the field again, based off the part of the country they're from. And now we've seen the change to say, can we sign up for fall? Is there a chance that my kid can play in the summer? Um, so I think that the fear's there, the anxiety is there, but they're also trying to find that sense of normalcy for their kids, moving back into something uh, that can give them a sense of things are okay. Um, And the kids, you know, I I feel like the kids are definitely finding different ways to engage with each other. um, And they're going to know all these different things, Zoom and, you know, Google Hangouts and everything that they're able to uh, use to connect and and stay connected. And hopefully that that engagement transcends um, when they get back on the field. And Scott, you play the game, you coach, you are deep in the development part of this. What is the loss of this meaning to our kids? There has to be a cost here. Yeah, it kind of depends on what pathway that player was on. And there seems to be uh, a variety of different uh, pathways for, for a player in, in, in all sports. But in soccer, it's interesting because, you know, we were still a relatively new sport in comparison to the other sports, baseball, basketball, uh, football. And we still haven't fully established our own um, fingerprint, or our own culture. And, and I think with this break, it may give the opportunity for the game uh, to reset a little bit. And when I say that, I think, um, you know, when you ask yourself, what is the fingerprint to the soul of soccer in America from a youth perspective? What is a cultural identity? It may have uh, fallen into a, a situation where it's a game for the wealthy. It's a little bit entitled. Um, it's expensive to play. 
is it a game for the masses like it is for anywhere else in the world? It's it's the global game. Uh, is that is that the situation here? Um, is it uh, is it purely a game for the suburbs? You know, at AYSO, we've got this distinct philosophy that everybody should play. Um, everyone should have access to playing. Uh, and and as I said, I, I tend to think we were we were right on the, the kind of peak of that whole trajectory with where soccer was going, and it was becoming very corporate in, in its makeup. It was very elite uh, and very performance driven. So what I think this has done in, in, in a certain way is, is presented an opportunity to reset and re-emerge better than we were before uh, because there's been such a break. Um, it's given clubs uh, uh, an opportunity to really consider what is important to their, their, their operation. Is it revenue? Is it development? Is it, is it just a community event? Um, and it's given players the opportunity to, this break's been interesting, right? So you've kind of now got this distinct pathway of either kids who are really into development and out there practicing their own anyway every day, doing whatever they can just because they want to play. And those that aren't doing that because it was becoming a little bit robotic and over-organized. So I see this as an incredible opportunity as much as it's a very difficult time and it's challenging for a lot of families, uh, but for the global game of soccer in this country, and you've seen of late, Donna, some of the turmoil that's going on in the infrastructure with the federation and in the leagues, I just think this is what needed to happen. And I think we'll come out of it better. This is quite an interesting perspective to hear. I wonder, Scott, if you could continue on with the fact that if you have a kid who was becoming robotic or it was becoming too much pressure, yeah, yeah. what would you say to that kid now to take a step back possibly and mm-hmm. reevaluate what he or she wants to do as a player? This is interesting. I think so. I think, um, you know, again, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall into two distinct areas. One is performance driven and another is participation or for the sake of really poor semantics that have been very detrimental, almost competitive in rec. And as you know, Donna, there's nothing non-competitive about any youth sport. They're trying to win, but we've termed it that way. And we've almost created this um, shiny object that is competitive elite play. And I'm for that. I come up through that environment. But I think the balance is a bit bit off. So is there now a a better appreciation for more general sports participation to balance up performance when at all costs environments? Do we start to see a more organic, uh, less structured play environment, more pickup style play that you have in the other sports, which helps ultimately show intrinsic motivation for players to push themselves. Those are the players that will do that because they love it and they want to do it. We've set set up an environment predominantly here where it's organized, it's structured, it's mechanistic, it's, you know, and and a good example is we would go to a practice session often, and this this is the same anywhere, and the kids would be waiting for the coach to start putting out cones or put out organized activity. So that's anywhere else in the world they're already playing a full pickup style play. So what yeah, so what I'm saying is I think now we 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 have we've kind of over organized, over structured, over presented the game. And now I think what'll happen is the game will be taken back by the players. 
that's that's what I think might happen. Um, and this developmentally as well has had a result on the type of player that we've created and ultimately how we've we've performed on the on the world stage. For the size of the country and the amount of players playing, you know, we haven't produced that Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo superstar athlete. We have what I consider to be world-class anomalies, which would be a Gio Reyna or a Christian Pulisic, but there should be so many more. And I think that might be the environments we've created. As I said, they're structured, they're organized, they're, they're containing, they're coach-centered almost, which is similar to the other sports here, play-based. So I just think it should be, I think the perspective of, you know, it's it's the performance pathway is the only way to go. I think now there'll be more light towards it's okay if we just want to play this sport to participate and have some community involvement. And I think that's what's happening in, in, with this breakdown is those players that wanted to that want to keep playing and perform and push themselves are out there practicing every day. Those that aren't are not. And that's okay. Yeah, and that is okay. And I think it's interesting. The play part has been taken out of the game. As a parent, I have seen it and witnessed it on the field, and it really breaks my heart. I mean, I came up playing lots of sports, and I enjoyed it, but I wasn't always the star. I, it just gave me this sense of teamwork and community and everything that sports offers. Yvonne, I want to ask you what you're hearing. How are you guys talking about what youth soccer will look like when we get back? Are we going to have a new normal what will play look like? How will kids interact? Will parents be allowed on the field? When will all this start back? Oh, that's like $5 million questions <laughs> right all in one. Uh, but Yvonne uh, knows the answers, so go ahead. <laughs> no pressure. Well, it's interesting because we have, you can ask people, and Scott will attest to this. I had to know everything about the coronavirus there possibly was before we could actually like move forward because, you know, to be able to message that out correctly. And I think part of that conversation is how do we define, so what's normal is not going to be what's normal moving forward. And that's okay. And I think that's part of our conversation of saying that the new normal doesn't mean bad. Um, that to Scott's point, the aspect of community, the aspect of coming together um, is going to be so craved when everybody is released that you know I think some of what we've been discussing is okay, let's engage our medical professionals and our, you know, our city leaders and health departments to really help us educate. And that's really part of our reactivation. We've been talking about reactivating and reengaging, getting people to register for the fall and, and get back out there. But part of this is I can't tell you it's okay to play. That, that doesn't mean much coming from me. But it does mean a lot when we can have a public official that is a, you know, a scientist or a doctor or somebody that comes alongside and says, yeah, you can play again, but this is how we're going to do it. You know? And so for us, you know, some of the things that we're used to, the handshakes after games and maybe the high fives and the tunnels and team snacks may not be part of that lexicon for right now. But that's okay because, you know, we may have to go and we have this amazing curriculum that sits at AYSO that really is about um, adaptability and being able to say, all right, so maybe it's not what we're used to having all those kids on the field, having all those refs, you know, and the coaches, but we can have a small-sided game and we can still have the environment of having fun. So I think some of it is a premature to know exactly what we're going to be able to do. But the great thing is that it's an active conversation for us. And we know the things that are going to have to change, 
Um, but part of that is, is really going to be um, a team effort outside of just AYSO and really engaging the communities that people are a part of to give them a sense of security and kind of assurance that we're looking out for your best possible um, you know, benefit. Your well-being is more important to us than making money. <laughs> that sounds, you know, yeah. so it's just a matter of when it's safe to come out. So we are really, we're looking at the fall. We're really looking at end of summer. We're looking at how are we slowly going to reintroduce this again. Um, and part of that is giving them a plethora of different ways. We are in the process of creating a whole curriculum, a new curriculum set um, and a whole campaign that will be engaging all those people I mentioned um, and, and being able to, to hopefully quell fears and, but also hear those fears and be able to address those. Um, and, and move forward. So we are, we're hopeful that, you know, August after August, we can get back out there. But what it looks like is does remain to be seen. But we know that it's important that we do get back out there. The variable Donna seems to be that just to add on to what it goes back to what I was saying is if we want to put out that exact model that is considered, you know, the youth soccer landscape, it's unlikely that's going to be suitable, you know, and that's why this idea of more organic, free-flowing, hiccup-type play with smaller numbers is probably going to be more likely and more realistic. I did a little bit of math on this uh, the other day, and if you think about the chances are there's going to be limitations to group sizing in some capacity if we roll it out, Um as well as, of course, social and physical distancing. But if you look at the numbers behind an 11 v 11 regular full-on organized soccer game at 14 years or 15 years, so you're looking at between 80 and 100 people in one field. I don't think that, I, I don't think I would go and play in that environment today. So I think we've got to take those scenarios and reframe them um, and as Yvonne said, you look at things like officials. Do we go with one? I would go with none, but that's just me personally. Let's not get into that. Um, you know, do you you know do you limit the amount of parents who attend the game with the children? Is it one? Is it a drop off situation that may be looked upon as an opportunity <laughs> more than a detriment? But no, I, I, the, the people want their kids. But I'm just saying that may become a factor. That there's limitations. Do you look at uh, temperature checks before you enter a facility is there you know a hand sanitizers breaks right maybe the, that happens we used to get water breaks now it'll be hand sanitizer breaks you might get elbow tips instead of high fives you know no team snacks as Yvonne's saying and you know the biggest one will coaches will need to sanitize equipment quite a lot after every game so nobody knows yet and, and I have we have as, a, as an organization been in touch with US soccer and USY and US club and USSA and SAY all the youth agencies um, and there will be global discussion on frameworks but it's just that little bit too early to say yet depends on what the, the guidelines were given by federal and state but we're all thinking about it but it probably won't look the same. It won't feel the same. Fewer people on the field for sure. The question for me for soccer as opposed to like baseball is the social distancing. How do you achieve social distancing on a soccer field? I managed to do it for 16 years, actually. Um, but that's just the way I played. 
Um, yeah, I, I don't. I think I don't think you you can't, right? I mean, that's why the only thing I realistically you'd be able to do it on is reduce the numbers so that there's the, the chance the, there's going to be less contact based on numbers. I would imagine. I don't have a scientific way to present that any other way. But that's the only thing that would make sense, right? Twenty-two players on the field versus fourteen. You may prefer fourteen. Early to say. And what do you think, Yvonne, about parents and what their role is going to be in this going forward? If you have to just drop off your kid and not watch, I mean, I know as a mom, I love watching my kids play sports. Every parent loves this. They live for it. It's their weekends, right? So there seems to be a bit of resilience build here. If you have to drop off your kids, maybe your kid goes to it and maybe they can just share with you what they did. Um, this is a lot of rethinking on this. You know, I think that, you know, because we do talk about what to not ask your child when you leave the field. You know, um, <laughs> I've seen this a lot. You know, my nephews, we are a sports family. Um, so my oldest nephew plays uh, hockey and he would always get annoyed, you know, of like, I did all these great things and we concentrated on the one bad thing when we got in the car, you know. And, and so I, th- I mean, Yes, I think there's a training that needs to go in here. It can be maybe drop off and get in your car and the parent has to watch from the car. But also there is this great opportunity to see the game and in this holistic sense when we're talking about giving the game back to the actual player is that they can describe the experience for them because they're, they're seeing something completely different. We all know as players when we played the game, you know, how we saw it was so much different than what your parents saw or your coach saw. And the beauty is in, in soccer, honestly, when it's not overcoached, it is a, it's, it's the reason it's called a beautiful, the beautiful game anyway, is that the creativity and expression that you can have on a field is exponential. And that um, ability for you to try something and, and see the immediate reaction that may not have worked okay, well, why didn't it work? How can I figure that out? And, and allowing that to be as opposed to the competing voices that kids hear on the field and the constant basis. Here's my coach talking, saying, no, pass this way, you know, or upfield. And then you've got mom or dad saying like, look behind you. And you're like, you can see every child is like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, who do I listen to? Who do I listen to? And, you know, it was always a train to you. My, my parents were always almost silent, you know, when we all played um, purposefully and because they wanted us to be able to, to deal, you know, my brother, I remember even my mom sitting in the stands in the corner, my brother's a pitcher and it was terrifying for her to watch as he got more and more elite. And she's just like, I don't ever want to say anything. You know, I just want him to know I'm here and I'm supporting whatever endeavor he wants to be in. And I think some of this might be this holistic way to give the game back to the child uh, and the player and allow them to develop that camaraderie with their teammates. Kids are very much, they, they want to come together and encourage one another. And I think sometimes, you know, parents can feed into like, well, you're the best player out there. Like you should be da da da. And it's like, like, well, actually I wasn't the best player out there. That's okay. I had fun. And so-and-so passed to me and it was great. And um, I had fun and I like, hung out with my friends. And I think that's the whole idea is I think we really need to help them understand that this is their game. This allows them to be who they are and they may not be the best player out there, but does that matter? Because the ones that want to continue on the trajectory will work hard, but the ones that just want to hang out and have fun, we need to say like, that's okay. 
So maybe not having mom and dad there all the time won't be as detrimental as we think to the actual child. <laughs> it might be for mom and dad that like, oh, I need, in my personal opinion, things think it could add to this amazing rediscovering of the joy that sports brings to all of us. Instead of vicariously living through your child, you can live through the joy. It's like when you go to an amusement park for the first time, like when you go to Disneyland, you know, as an adult, you're like, oh my gosh, so many lines and people and all this stuff. But then when you go with a little kid for the first time and they see, they're like, oh, the wonder that comes out in them reminds you of the wonder you had when you first saw it. And I think that we may have an opportunity here to um, learn about what the game should be about and what sports should be about through the eyes of the people that are actually doing it. I really love that. That really just allows for this creative flow. I love this kind of reset. Scott, I know you have a daughter who plays soccer and you're that dad. How mm-hmm. is she doing and how are you doing together as a family, not being able to play? What does your daughter say? Well, I wouldn't know because she's been in her room for six weeks. Um, <laughs> no, she, she's, she's 17 and she plays on a club team here in, in, in Southern California. And she's, she's kind of one of those players that's right on that cusp. She could go the performance pathway um, or she could play. For, I think she genuinely now has realized that there's a social and, and participation benefit that she really enjoys and misses. She misses the camaraderie of her teammates, um, this, the socializing aspect, um, which isn't overly encouraged at that level either. But that's what I'm saying. I think like, when I look at my daughter, I think there's an example of, of a child or an athlete that probably is playing, has the ability and is, does a good job, but probably is playing for more of a social behavioral reason and gain than I want to be the best and you know so on and so on. She And she's in that kind of middle level of probably if she had, depending on her mentality, could push the other, could go either way. So I think this is an example of, and, and for parents like me, I, I'm looking at this now and because everything we have with her prior is so organized, it's so planned, it's so regimented, it's so disciplined. It's, you know, it's like being a youth professional. Um, yet when this stopped, there wasn't as much desire or need to go and do stuff with the ball or be out there in the run. She's gone out, but not the way I would have gone out as a child. This would have just been the perfect time for me to play because I'd have no pressure and just develop. So there's an example of that, that athlete that might find coming out of this another environment that's probably more suitable, more e- just as enjoyable, and ultimately to families, which is important, as, as Yvonne mentioned, much, much more affordable. Right now, we have people chasing you know, the, the, the shiny object or in order to say they play at X club. Um, and it might be a, a level that's not really suitable for the child themselves, yet it may be the only thing that's available. But they've been kind of put in this pathway that that's where you should go. And what I'm saying now is that may be where you should go, but it might not be. And there's another opportunity there for you to consider. So she's doing fine, but, you know, obviously, Missy, as I say, I would say she misses her friends and her teammates and her coach as, as much, if not more, than she misses the game itself. Well, yeah, it's just it's just a lot of different things for a lot of different kids. And every child has their own kind of view of the world and where they fit in based on their age and everything else. I want to talk to you now about what we know for sure and what we can do. And it was really interesting to me when I came across your website and saw the blog post about 
at-home mental skills activities that can keep your kids' mental games strong. And I think that that is such an encouraging way to kind of keep kids engaged and active. So th- this this starts to lend itself into a little bit of the culture of the organization, Donna. Um, in, in soccer, we talk about four cornerstones. You're talking about technical, tactical, physical, and psychosocial. Um, psychosocial being the cognitive side of the, the game. Everybody talks about this, about developing the player, the athlete. We have a priority to talk about developing the child, the individual. And that's why when we talk about those four cornerstones, we start with psychosocial. We start with the trying to understand the, the, the child prior to the athlete. Um, and that's just cultural from, you know, been around a long time, but it's what we believe should be the priority. Um, and this is an example of this. We've got a lot of, of information um, and Katie's a, a new addition and she's been great providing up-to-date sports psychology to, for players to to help develop uh, that side of their game. But it's really an example of putting the child first and the game secondary. And although a lot of people, a lot of organizations say that, it's not quite as easy to do. And I don't know as many that, that do it as well as what we do. It's just something that, and again, that comes with sometimes uh, negative connotations because it can come over as, you know, less serious. But all we're doing is saying that it's, a, it's an individual child before it's a player. Uh, and that's what we've tried to do. So this is an example of that. And we've got other priorities, but all of our content, all of our curriculum is first written. Uh, the, the components start with what is the, the, the age-appropriate environments and chronological development pieces that are suitable for that child. So it's just something we've done as a as a as an organization from the beginning. And the, the idea now of self-imagery is huge, but it lends into so many other things. For sure. Absolutely. I really like that. And as we close, what's your message to parents and kids out there who are just dying to get back on the field and missing this part of their life, which is really a huge part of all these people's lives, these families' lives? What would you offer to them? Go ahead, Yvonne. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Uh, <laughs> um, I would say first and foremost, we miss it too. I think that we need to uh, admit that that there this we grieve as well. I think we've kind of all gone through a grieving process of of seeing what we even had just a few months ago. You know, it, it has been such a fast and furious thing. But also just a reminder that we know that people want to be out again and engaging and the thing that they love, the community that they love, um, and that we're working really hard to make this a safe environment for you to come back into. Be patient with us because I think as all of us, you know, on a global sense are craving that community again, we're really um, intentional about this being an environment where you feel that you can come again and that the well-being of your family is first and foremost and that AYSO is truly a family. It's it's community-based for a reason. And even though we're across the entire nation, it's still its core about the family and about the AYSO family. So we look forward to being out together again, and we really think that um, even in the new normal, you'll still be able to experience that camaraderie that you've always experienced with us. Scott? Yeah, I think uh, as we were trying to talk to some of our, our staff who were getting antsy as well, you know, this this too will pass. 
it will pass. And I think we'll find that the game is going to come out better. I think we'll find that the game will help reconnect with our neighbours, with our families. Um, it'll we'll work our way around the isolation. Uh, I think we'll become more inclusive uh, of, of everything that out there because I think we've, we've got the other side of it now. We've been excluded. So I think, again, the reset scenario uh, and Ignite are kind of real opportunity. Um, I've got genuine optimism um, that the, the soccer gods are going to rebalance the game here. And it's going to be, you know, not just here and all over the world, because, again, it's got a little bit of control. So I think we're going to come out of this much better than we went in. This has been such an awesome conversation. Thank you both for being here. I have really enjoyed it. You have really given some great information and it's been enlightening too, to I think me and all these parents listening out there. Scott and Yvonne, thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having us. It's yeah, thank you for having pleasure. us. Well, parents, this is all still a wait and see. And as Steve Keener said, a bit of a rain delay, but there are lots of lessons here. First, we use protective gear to keep our kids safe on the fields. Baseball helmets, shin guards for soccer, etc. Now it's a matter of protecting our kids from COVID-19 and staying at home. Second, we just need to see the big picture and know that every soccer star and slugger in the batter's box can overcome this obstacle, just like every other obstacle they've overcome as an athlete before. Like Babe Ruth said, quote, Every strike brings me closer to the next home run, end quote. Thanks for listening, everyone, and please download and subscribe to Kids Under Construction. We will get through this together. Until next time.